Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james, netsuite.com slash james netsuite.com slash james this isn't your average business podcast and he's not your average host this is the james altucher show today on the james altucher show so again, you write about so many creative business models, even in this environment. What strikes you right now as an interesting business model? What else is out there that you think is interesting for people to start? So like we have the hustle and then we have trends. And what trends us is we've hired a team of analysts and all we do is go out and like reverse engineer cool stuff and like do case studies. And we have all these data points that show like what we think is gonna be popular. And it's freaking awesome. It's just like my own playground because I like to go out and angel invest in companies and this just tells me what to do. I love it. And so what trends do you see happening right now, particularly, it's hard to really predict post shutdown what's gonna flourish and what's gonna die in the next 12 months. It's hard to predict, but I don't think that's the right word that I'm looking for. What I'm looking for is what's possible. And so I like to look at what are consumers or businesses demanding and how are people doing things in other countries or other regions of the world? And basically what's working at a small level already and it's growing, even if it's just growing just a little bit. And then to try to understand, can that be done at a much larger rate? And is there still more room in the marketplace for things similar to that? So what are people thinking? Yeah, I mean, it's my belief and a lot of people don't like hearing this, but wherever there's tragedy, there's gold and opportunity. So I think that for the right-minded person, there's so much opportunity to pounce on right now. So um, what else? What's next? I'm just gonna keep pounding you for what's next. I have Sam Parr with me. He's the owner of The Hustle Media Company, which has a newsletter with 
well over a million subscribers. I'm very interested in how you built that, Sam. And also you have uh, The Hustle Runs the Podcast, My First Million. Another thing that I'm sure everybody's interested in, everybody wants to make their first million. And you recently had an interesting Twitter thread too about how you created, I guess, like a hot dog food truck. And and I'm interested in that. Like, because I think for, I, I want to get to The Hustle newsletter because I think that's actually understanding the business model of that and how you built up your audience for that, I think is going to be a critical skill set, you know, post this shutdown, lockdown, you know, whatever you want to call it. But I also think like in New York City, everyone is saying now, oh, rest, nobody should ever open up a restaurant again in New York. And I do think about 30 to 40% of restaurants in New York City might go out of business. Just uh, I'm a local business owner in New York City as well. And I know a lot of the restaurant owners and I can just tell you 30 to 40% are done. Doesn't matter about any loans. Doesn't matter about anything. They're done. And so everyone's saying, oh, don't start a restaurant in New York, but it might be the best time to start some sort of food company in New York because everything's going out of business. You're gonna have less competition and still the same population more or less. So, but, but maybe if you don't wanna own a storefront restaurant, a food truck's the way to go. Yeah, I mean, I, I I know about that. If if I was going to be in the food space, and we we talked about this for a while, but cloud kitchens are just absolutely the way to go. Tell me what a what's a cloud kitchen? Yeah, so um, I'll do a, a small plug, but we own this thing called Trends, which is Trends.co. It's like our research arm, and um, we just research interesting ideas that are growing quickly and we do case studies on cool companies. Yeah, I see you typing. Go to trends.co. You can see Yeah, it. yeah, go to trends.co. I'm going to start my I'm going to start my $1 trial. Yeah, it's cool. Um and we uh we actually just switched over our payment providers like 8 or let's see, it's 9 a.m. like 5 hours ago. So hopefully you don't you don't find any bugs. Uh you might though. Uh but anyway, um cloud kitchens are like and I discovered them actually a couple of years ago. But if you like would go to Uber Eats, you would see all these restaurants that you had never seen in real life, and they were basically just kitchens without storefronts. And it was interesting for two reasons. The first reason it was interesting was they didn't have a storefront. The second thing it was interesting is that they like you could like have you could like create like a burrito menu and name it like Sam's Burritos, and then you could create like. James's uh, James's quesadilla company, and then you could create uh, Sam's um, curry company. But it's really all three are the same location, the same place. They just throw these menus online uh, on Uber Eats, and then just make stuff as it comes in. Do you know what I mean? Uh, that's a brilliant idea because it's sort of like that whole thing where you know if you order on Seamless or Grubhub or whatever, and let, like there's this happens to me frequently. There's like a sushi place that I'll love and I'll order from all the time. But then when you actually pass it and you see it in the street and it's like this dirty hole in the wall, you're like shocked. But this is a good way to, you never, what I'm saying is I never actually normally see the restaurants I order from. So what makes the difference if they have a storefront, if they're just in some closet somewhere? Right. And you can like rapidly test different things. Like, um, I mean, when I started my hot dog stands in college, I started with like 500 bucks. I mean, I don't. I, I would imagine you could start in the similar ballpark of a couple grand. You could start a restaurant, and you could be like, "Let's just see if New York City really wants like um, this genre of food," and we'll just throw this menu on Uber Eats and see if we can get any traction and and and, and rapidly test. And you could use that 
the profits from that to fund a storefront, to fund this other stuff. And uh, I think it's cool. You know, um, I think a really cool example of a food business is Halal Guys in New York. Yeah. And uh, they must make a ton of money. There's huge lines. I mean, I don't know about now, but there's huge lines in the, in the middle of the workday for lunch. Well, they franchised it out. So now there's Halal Guys uh, in San Francisco, and it all started with a food truck or a stand or whatever you want to call those carts. Anyway, uh, cloud kitchens are the way to go right now. And and how do I find? Let's let's say I want to do this. Let's say I want to start uh, cooking James's burritos. And uh, uh, how do I find a cloud kitchen near me? Well, um, that's where there's a lot of opportunity actually right now. So Travis Kalanick, the founder of Uber, actually just started a company called Cloud Kitchens, and the whole idea is that you can use their space and start it up. But basically, when you when I started my hot dog stands in college, what I had to do was I had to find what was called a commissary. So it's a bar or it's a kitchen that is registered with the government as a, a place to uh, prepare food. So, for example, I used a bar. So I gave a bar like, uh, I think, $200 a month, and I just kept my food in their freezer. And I was selling hot dogs. There was nothing really to prepare other than chop onions. And uh, anyway, I would pay them like $200 a month, and I would keep my stuff there. And I would prepare my food there, and then I would go out and sell. And so to start a cloud kitchen, I don't know for sure, but I imagine you would need a commissary or some type of uh, proper kitchen where you're able to do this. And you could pay 200 to to $1,000 a month, I bet. And then you can just uh, submit your business license and EIN number to Uber Eats and create a menu. And I bet you, you, can, you can start immediately. So let's say... So okay, so and I don't know this for a fact. I'm just saying what this is what I did with food trucks and stands and stuff, and I bet it's similar. So the bar, the bar had a kitchen, but they didn't want to make food in there, other than like French fries. Or well, something? no, they did, but like uh, basically, if you like, you just I, I didn't know them, but I just walked in and I said, "Hey, so here's the deal. I want to start this thing of selling stuff outside of your uh, place late at night. You guys don't serve food at night. I'll pay you two or I forget how much money I paid." Like three hundred dollars a month, and I'll just just you just let me have this really small corner in your freezer. I won't bother anyone. I won't touch anything. I'll even clean up and sweep for you guys, and uh, that's it. I just I just need this by law. And and I guess they benefit not only from the three hundred dollars, which is so I own a bar in New York City. Three hundred dollars wouldn't do much for us, but uh, uh, where they do benefit and where I would would benefit now uh, is having food right outside yeah. the bar because then customers, you know, you get foot traffic from the food, but also sometimes your customers in the bar want food. And if you don't have food, it's like, oh, did, did that bar let the, let customers bring hot dogs in, have hot dogs in a drink? Yeah, yeah. That was like the stick was that we would work together. But now there's all these companies, which is what Travis Kalanick does, and all they are is commissaries. And so they make it really easy to launch these uh, cloud kitchens because – it's booming. They're booming right now. I mean, think about it. Like, what is a uh, what's like a New York only brand? Um, I don't know. There's a bunch of cool stuff. Like, there's like a bunch of like cool places in New York where there's only like three or four locations, and I could just spin that up in San Francisco using Uber Eats, and it would cost me nothing. I mean, it would cost me single digit thousands of dollars, or maybe low tens of thousands of dollars to start that up and to only have it exist on Uber Eats versus Getting a lease, which would be ten grand a month. Uh, getting furniture. I mean, it would easily cost half a million dollars to start just a, just a cute chain in San Francisco. Whereas if you do it on cloud kitchens, the costs are significantly lower. So, 
Right. So there's, let's say there's a restaurant chain that has got a full menu and it's very popular, but it's just in New York City, which, by the way, originally was like Shake Shack, for instance. Yeah. So let's take Shake Shack before it spread all over. And you could be in San Francisco. You, you, you rent some space in a commissary. You serve Shake Shack style hamburgers. And maybe you pay Shake Shack some sort of license fee as well. Yeah. Um, but but they'll do it cheap because you're just doing an experiment. And and then now it's Shake Shack on Uber Eats. How much do you think, um, you know, how much business do you think you could generate? In a big city, I mean, San Francisco in terms of population isn't big, but in terms of people who use Uber Eats, it's quite large. I mean, I think you would make single digit millions of dollars. I think that what I, the way that I would model it out is like Subway. Um, Subway is, you know, did you know that Subway, I think Subway has more uh, locations than any other fast food chain yeah, in the yeah. country. Yeah, I yeah, I think Subway, I think, is 27,000 and McDonald's is 14,000 in the U.S. And I yeah, think Starbucks so, is around 14,000 as well. So Subway is huge. And the reason why Subway is huge is if you go to a small town, so I'm from Missouri and I've hung out a lot in Tennessee and Alabama and all these small towns, oftentimes a small town won't have a McDonald's because they're quite expensive to start. Yeah, about about two million you might end up spending to start a McDonald's. Yeah, and I think the average location might gross uh, or might net, the sorry the net income after all said and done. I think a good McDonald's is about a million dollars, maybe eight hundred thousand. I forget exactly, but anyway, a subway you could probably start a subway with a quarter of a million or less. Uh, because you only need two people at a time to work there and you don't need uh, a fryer and you don't need a bunch of other stuff. And so if I was to do this, I would just look at kind of what, like how Subway set it up and I would just copy that because um, that's the way to go. Wait, in terms of setting up a restaurant or in setting up a... Uh, in, ter- uh, in terms of what expectations are that I can make. Yeah, because the, oh. co- the, the cost structure is probably more similar to a Subway than it is uh, a big, like a... But minus the, the rent, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Minus the rent. Because the $250,000, that includes rent? Yeah, uh, uh, leasing a location. But in terms of like opportunities right now, uh, cloud kitchens, I think that's super interesting. I, I, I personally, I don't think I would want to do it as like my main gig, but uh, if, I had, if I was interested in food and wanted to make money in food, that's what I would do. I think that's an enormous idea because think about movie theaters right now. Like a lot of people are saying movie theaters are going out of business. And by the way, I think AMC even is like flirting with bankruptcy at the moment. Uh, Universal just released uh, a movie, uh, the sequel to another movie that I had never heard of. Universal released something like Trolls Without Borders, grossed $95 million in the past three weeks, going straight to on demand. And, and they got 80% of the cut as opposed to with a movie theater where they probably would have grossed less money and only got 50% of the cut. And so AMC said to Universal, well, you know, screw you. We're, you know, we're not going to run your movies anymore. Meanwhile, AMC is the one about to go bankrupt. But what if you take these movie theaters and turn them into 30 kitchens? It's interesting. I think that's going to happen with malls too. Yeah, you think malls will just turn... What do you think malls will turn into? Um, my, kitchens? Well, my philosophy was to turn them into nursing homes. Oh yeah, that could be interesting. I've always wanted malls to turn into nursing homes. I, I'm I'm super fascinated with what's going to happen to mall real estate. I've always thought that malls would yeah. be great schools or great uh, nursing homes. But even schools are like falling apart right now. Uh, so so a mall is interesting because they're some of them are huge, right? So is it too big for a nursing home, or are you just assuming? I mean, we've got seventy million boomers that are going to they're all going to be old in the next twenty years. 
Dude, nursing homes are so expensive. Do you know how, I think, what's a good nursing home cost? I mean, I'm thankful that I'm not in a situation where I have to worry about that at the moment. But like, I mean, a good nursing home could be like 15 grand, 20 grand a month. It's so expensive. Who pays for that usually? I don't fucking know. Because that's like expensive rent. Like you can't, like we were just discussing earlier, you can't spend that for a house. 15 grand a month in rent? What? How much is your, you pay more than 15 grand a month in rent? Uh, I do, but I'm in New York City. <laughs> what? How big's your place? It's 3,000 square feet. In Manhattan? Yeah, in the Upper West Side. Uh, and it's more than 15 grand fucking A. I feel like what's what's a... That what's the what would be the cap rate on that real estate? Fifteen grand would be uh, if it's five percent. So that'd be a, so. The, the what's the place worth then? Like three, if it's more than fifteen grand, would the place have to be worth like four million dollars? I would say this place, if it was for sale right now, would probably go for between. Oh, I mean, before the pandemic, I don't know about now. It would probably go for between seven and eight million. That's fucking crazy. Yeah, yeah. I, but that's why I would never own. Like who? I, for me, I think ownership is insane. For me, I can scale up or scale down you know, year by year or sometimes even month by month. Like I used to just live in Airbnbs. So uh, I could scale up or scale down just depending on how much money I made that month. And by the way, I'm, I am I do plan on going broke again. I'm I'm sort of known for going broke and bouncing back. I know. I'm, I'm going to go broke again. So I, I just spend what I want. I, I like the apartment. I've got five kids. That's crazy. And sometimes they're all under one house. So, um, but yeah, like, but but malls though, are so big. You're gonna first off. You're right. Malls are gonna go into bankruptcy, and so you're probably gonna be able to buy some malls cheap. Man, I thought they're gonna go into bankruptcy. Have you seen the REITs right now? Like the commercial, um, the commercial REITs right now. They're still crushing. I don't understand how that could be because take take again take New York City or take San Francisco. WeWork is probably the biggest renter in New York City and San Francisco, just in terms of like rent. I mean, if you own a building and WeWork owns or is renting eight floors in that building, and then they just disappear. Like, they're not going to clean up before they go bankrupt. They're just going to disappear. What's that building owner going to do? He can't rent that that space anytime soon, but they still have to pay all the loans back. So it seems, and that's just WeWork. There's other going to be, other businesses are going to be scaling down because of new remote working, restaurant storefronts, clothing store storefronts. These are all going to go empty. You can't rent a restaurant space in a building to a non-restaurant. It's got the kitchen. It's it's made to be a restaurant. So what, what are commercial REITs going to do? These real estate companies, they have to go. It's got has to be a, a financial crisis again after this financial crisis. Yeah, it's weird. I And it doesn't make sense to me. Uh, I've pulled my money from the market. I just, I feel like just a plebe. I'm just an idiot. I don't understand any of this. I don't know why it's working the way it is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't think anyone does, but you probably, I think there's a lot of uncertainty right now. So I also have been not active at all because there's just too much uncertainty. The market's at the same level it was a few months ago when we were at full employment and the economy was growing. Now the economy's shrinking and there's like 20% unemployment or more. It's, uh... Uh, you know, it's a, it's a lot different situation, but the flip side is there's all the stimulus, but we don't know where that stimulus is going to end up. But I like, I like this, this kind of thinking though, of like, what's going, we know malls are in trouble. Like JC Penney just declared bankruptcy. Neiman Marcus just declared bankruptcy. So all these flagship stores of malls, malls are sort of anchored by these flagships. And so we know malls are going to have problems and there's probably going to be some malls that go out of business. And I don't know, you think it's possible to buy an obscure mall cheap 
or they're still huge. Um, yeah, I think your perspective is skewed because you live in New York, but um, we just looked at real estate before this. I mean, I, look, I bet you could buy a mall in Missouri where I live for, fuck, uh, I don't know how that would work. It would it would be complicated because you'd have to have probably a lot of improvements. I bet you you could buy a mall for $3 million. Yeah, and so then if you figure um, each bed you're charging 180000 a year for, and a mall could probably fit like a thousand beds. That's, you know, well, yeah, it's interesting. Million. <laughs> I know people in the uh, nursing home business and it's booming. Well, that's not right now with everyone getting sick. I mean, it's still, they're still paying, they're still making money, but I certainly, yeah, it, it's like next to like a prison and a cruise ship is like nursing home is in terms of getting sick. It's like a, you know, you're trapped in there. So, not fun now, but historically, it it definitely is a money making business. Yeah, and there's there's 72 million baby boomers alive right now in the U.S., and uh, they're all going to get, they're all going to be you know elderly within the next few years. I mean, the baby boom start, what, is from 1946 to 1964. So even the people born in 1964, well, I guess they've got another 15 years before they start considering this. But people born in 1946, they're how old are they right now? They're sixty. No, they're they're like eighty years old now. Yeah. Oh no, no, they're like seventy-five years old. Can't add. Old yet. enough to be in the ballpark. Um, yeah. So okay, that's an idea. So we've got we've got cloud kitchens. We've got malls turning into nursing homes. Let's do it, man. Let's make let's, <laughs> let's do an idea factory here. So okay, you wouldn't do the food truck. You'd rather just sort of sit around and um do the, go to this hole in the wall kitchen. Make you know make hamburgers like sam's burgers here sam's taco yeah burgers. i mean look so here's I've, I've thought about this so new york is actually a great case study you guys have all these stupid viral foods like rainbow bagels or like uh cronuts uh, or whatever like yeah. they're all, like all these cute things and and here's how it works they like they take food I've already I've, I've 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 spent so much time thinking about this. They take food that's typically a side and they make it a, the main thing. Like instead of cookie dough ice cream, it's just like cookie dough with no ice cream. So you just buy cookie dough. Or they take normal food and they make it a weird color or a, a weird shape. So like really big things, really small things, uh, purple ketchup, whatever. They just like it's like colors. Or they combine two foods. Uh, Krona or like freaking like I don't know. You Wait, can. I want to. I want to write this down. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. So so take a side and make it a dish. So yeah, take a side like and make fries? it a main thing. So yeah, like just a French fry bar. Okay, you just take a side and you make it the main thing. Or like what's like a side typically? Like hash browns. Okay, hash browns. Just make it only hash browns. You just take a side and you make it the main thing. Um. That's Would like anyone what, order delivery from a place that's just hash browns? Potatoes actually, this is interesting. Um, potatoes are actually one of the hardest foods to ship. So Uber Eats had a whole team that worked on McDonald's to try to get French fries to your home in a in a in a uh, uh, fresh way. So potatoes historically are very hard to ship. Um, but like, what's a side? I don't know. I, uh, uh, like, like broccoli. Yeah, just make it like like the best. Or or, or I've got an idea. What if it's all sides. So you, so the menu is just, you know, broccoli, pancetta, you know, uh, right. uh, uh, fries, hash browns. Cause sometimes so just I just go the, to a restaurant and sometimes I just order the sides. 
Yeah, so just the side has to be the main thing. The second thing is it has to be, or it doesn't have to be. This is like the, another angle is it it's the it's a normal food, but or like cookie dough. That's that's what I said. So like instead of like chocolate chip cookie dough, just cookie dough. That's like your thing. Um, the second thing is you take a normal food and you put it, you make it either a weird size or a weird shape. So like for example. Um, if you have like an ice like an ice cream place again, you you just make it like the biggest cone there is, or or if you have a bagel, you make it purple as opposed to like you guys in New York have like rainbow cookies or something. Is that like a thing? Rainbow cake? Uh, I I don't know. I wouldn't know. That's like a I thing. I eat like basically the same thing every day. And then what's the other one? And then you or you take two foods that seem a little bit weird and you just combine them. Oh, like, oh Melissa's Melissa's baked goods. Uh, I forget the name of the company, but they do cupcakes, but they're really tiny and they're like a dollar. Yeah. So just, yes, I've been there. Um, and then and okay, so you do one of those three things. There's actually a few more categories that I've uh, written out, but uh, oh wait, so co combine two foods is that like let's say I made couscous tacos. <laughs> Yeah, you got That's a shit combination, but you're on the right track. <laughs> Why is that? I would eat that. Why is that a shit combination? Well, maybe it's not. I don't know. Like it, it could be. I okay. I think, well, what's what's your favorite combo? What would you do? Like, uh, I think they have to be two combos in the same categories. So, like Taco Bell, and if we're gonna talk about tacos, uh, Mexican food, Taco Bell does this, where they just take, they just they, it's all the same shit, but they just call it cuter names. So, like, if they like combine a taco and a quesadilla. Like it's all just a tortilla, meat and cheese, but they like somehow call it like the gordito crunch or something like that. See, I like I like when you combine two ethnic foods. So so like in, in New York, there's a lot of Cuban Chinese restaurants, and you know that's kind of you know this. And, and in San Francisco, there's a lot of quote unquote fusion, which is really like a mix of lots of yeah. We have know, like sushi food. burritos and things like and like we're like sushi rito. That's actually a restaurant. It's called sushi rito. That's so funny. And so what's another combination? Just, I'm, I'm stretching your brain here. Um, for some reason in San Francisco, the Indian people make a lot of pizza. And so they try to make like Indian style pizza. Uh, that's great. Now I'm still trying to think of just realistically, am I going to order cookie dough through Uber Eats? Like that's the only one where I don't know, you, you still might need a small storefront uh, I'm trying to figure out maybe, well, maybe oh no I've already no so let's go to the next step I hear I'm gonna tell you how to yeah. get customers okay so yeah Thrillist BuzzFeed and all these places they just all you just get a, you either get a line or you get a picture of people going being frantic about your shit and you make the whole story two things one about how ridiculous this food is and two how hipsters in Williamsburg or uh, Madison Square Park are like waiting in line to eat it and so you write the press, you write the article and you send it to Thrillist? Well, I would make a video, I would make my own video of it and then I would put like $500 behind it on Facebook and Instagram videos and then I would post it on uh, the subreddit of New York City and uh, it would get picked up. That's, that's, that's great. So, so <laughs> and, and you would say, <laughs> this is ridiculous. They're, they're getting like, yeah, you just call it outrage. for cupcakes that are like uh, millimeters long, and then yeah, uh, like then, people are waiting in line to order a cup of cookie dough. What the hell? And it's purple cookie dough, <laughs> or yeah. like, or like fondue is like the latest rage in New York City. It doesn't matter if it is or is not. You just say that. But uh, this is just how it works. But, but but this is where you have a storefront. Yeah, but, but, but this was when you, when you have a storefront. Though. But you don't want that storefront because in reality, because you want to be able to change that shit because it gets old fast. So you just got to come up with new sticks every six months. 
But how do you how do you get do the thrillers? How do you do the video if people aren't online because you don't have a storefront because you're just doing a delivery? Yeah, I mean, you just got to figure out how to get people to line up. <laughs> I don't know. I would have yeah. to. <laughs> uh, I need to adapt. Or maybe just maybe like, uh, well, well, what's the regulations? Like, if you have a uh, if you're cooking in a kitchen, can you go on the sidewalk and set up a stand? Um, there's rules uh, uh, for what you can sell on a stand, but yeah, you can. Or I guess there are like food markets, so you can. So like once every once a quarter, you could go to some parade where they're opening up stands on the sidewalk. Yeah, or like and, here's one. You guys have this out here, a ramen. You guys have like these ramen cheeseburgers. You ever had that? No, but that sounds that it's sounds like a good like, combo. Like instead of a bun, it's like uh, ramen that's stuck together. I like that because I actually eat, uh, you know, those like 25 cent ramen noodle packages you could buy. Yeah, I, I like them dry. So just that's, what, that's what it is. It's dry. It's that dry stuff with beef in between. So anyway, you want to start a a, a restaurant there. That's what you do. You just, that, there's the three. There's I just gave you the rules for how to get popular. I don't know if it will be sustainable, but you certainly can make a splash. Now wait, we're we're still are, are we mostly talking though? This is for delivery. So yeah, so. I would do that. I could do that for delivery. Man, you can manipulate this shit so easily. You just got to put some money behind it on Facebook ads and Instagram ads and uh, target it to people who live in Williamsburg. And, and uh, that's so funny. Um, yeah, I wonder what would work in the Upper West Side because that's a little bit more older, family, uh, conservative, uh, you know, not politically, but just in terms of their habits. Uh, but, you know, everybody likes cookie dough. So, uh, but but yeah, I'm, I'm curious about the the... The idea of taking a side dish and making it the main thing, I can see that working as a small storefront. Like there are storefronts in New York City where it's just rice pudding. It might even be called rice or pudding or something like that. But would you set up a, a kitchen that had no storefront that was just a side dish like cookie dough? Like would people order just cookie dough for delivery? Yeah. Hell yeah, dude. I don't know if there's such thing as like Google's search analytics for Uber Eats search, but uh, like... In 2000 and, uh, 2009, uh, when YouTube just launched, I used to make these viral videos, and it was pretty scammy, but it was literally just a picture, uh, and there was nothing on it, and it would rack up all these views and ad revenue, and all you would do is you would type in like one word, and it would autofill um, with stuff, and uh, you would that's how you would see what to make your title of your video by what would autofill. I bet you can do that with Uber Eats right now. You just type in any like food word and it will autofill with something and that will show you what people are searching for. So if I type in cookie, yeah. And 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 cookie dough is the first thing that tells me, hey, maybe people really do specifically only want cookie dough sometimes. Yeah. That would totally work. And so for oh, that's interesting about YouTube. Do you think that same strategy works right now? For YouTube? Yeah. No. Like, what's an example video that you did? I'll tell you. Um, it, it was some shady <laughs> he says shit. Reluctantly. I, okay, so I'll preface this by saying I was 16 years old. But, uh, okay. like, for example, I used to watch, like, street fight videos on YouTube. And if you would type in, like, people's races, like, white guy or black guy, it would autofill with, like, white guy beats up black guy or black guy beats up white guy. It would autofill. And if you just... You just make that the title, and you just put a picture of it. I would get a million views in a month on a video, and it, uh, and why and why do you think that doesn't work anymore? 
Uh, well, one, it was a scam. I mean, it wasn't a scam. I wasn't stealing from anyone, but I was, they would, I was, it was shit. It was clickbait. Um, why doesn't it work anymore? Because one, let's say you had a legit video of, you know, two white guys fighting and, and, and you realize that would be the best title through these, this YouTube search idea. Well, I think it would help you The the, you could use that to help. But now like back then, which wasn't even long ago, it was 10 years ago, there, there wasn't such thing as YouTube search analytics, and now you could definitely use that to rank. Um, and there also weren't that many creators, so there was an oversupply, or there was an over, there was a huge demand, but little supply, so I could uh, game the system really easily. Now, you know, there's a massive amount of supply and a massive amount of demand, so it's met a little bit easier. And also, people are smarter, so um, it's not easy to trick people into clicking into stuff, or it's not as easy. And and what would you make when you were 16 years old on one video like that? Um, hundreds of dollars a month on ad revenue. Man, so you didn't need a paper route. <laughs> yeah, it made hundreds of dollars a month. So enough for a 16-year-old. And on the food truck, is there is there a lot of... Uh, so later on, you did a food truck. Are there a lot of regulations for sending No, I did a food cart. I a food did a, cart, yeah. I did a food stand. Yes, and that's actually a big... So you're asking about regulations. That's one of the distinctions. So... There's a di there's two things. One, there's a difference between something that you step into and something that you are pull behind a car and you're uh, outside of. So if you can step into something, that's one thing. If you can't step into it, that's a different thing. And um, there's a reason why there's hot dog stands because by law, in I think 49 of the 50 states, uh, you can only sell a frankfurter, which is considered cased meat that is already cooked. And so you could typically only sell things that were pre-cooked and you could eat them raw or or heated up and it would not make you sick either way. And that's why um, there's hot dog stands as opposed to cheesesteak stands. So like um, you need a totally different, there's a different set of rules for selling cooked beef as there is for selling Frankfurters. And so um, I opened up a hot dog stand because that was the cheapest one. And so what... Uh... Just out of curiosity, I was, you know, what are you gaming now? What are, what, are, what are you seeing as, you know, other than malls turning into nursing homes, which I like that idea too. It, you know, it might even be possible to like, if, if, a mall, if a mall is in receivership, like if a mall company goes bankrupt, you might not even have to buy the mall. You could probably just like rent space or lease for a long period of time or get seller financing from, from the courts just to get it off the, the books yeah. uh, from the bankrupt company. Um, but anyway, what, what, what other things, what are you looking into gaming right now? I don't game anything. I mean, I definitely, uh, was like a hacker and I, now I, I mean, I, first of all, everything I do is legitimate. <laughs> now I, in order to create, I think sustainable wealth and large amounts of wealth, it's definitely much easier if you just do everything legitimately and build a brand that people love and actually trust and like, because then you could create anything or sell anything. Um, so I, I try not to game anything. Um, I mean, the hustle. But that, you were, it doesn't sound like you were gaming the, the hot dog stand. I mean, that, that no, was. No, I wasn't and, gaming and, it. I mean, I was taking advantage of opportunity. So, um, I, 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 if you, as so long as gaming doesn't mean illegal and means creating shit that people actually like, but I'm just playing a yeah, game but, but to win, yeah. then yes, yeah. I, I did. Um, uh, now, I mean, with the hustle, with email, like, we built this big eight figure company, or I mean, that's not big, but, um, meaningful sized and it's going to be i think well, i think we'll do hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue 
and it started with email. So that we definitely gained that. I mean, you know, you you're associated with a company that has made potentially billions of dollars, and it started with yes. email as well. Um, and so, uh, a lot of people are shocked by that that email can be that big. And so we definitely, in in the sense of like, email can be huge. We gained email, in in the sense of like, we built this large thing off of the back of email. Well, how did you? So okay, describe the hustle. It's kind of a business entrepreneurial newsletter. By the way, you interviewed me. You interviewed me the day we launched the hustle. I don't know if you know that, but you did. That's so funny. I I yeah. I, I I'm losing my memory. I'm over I'm over That's the age right. of fifty now, so I'm totally losing my memory. What when did you launch it? Uh, we turned four four years old uh, like a few days ago. So four years ago, um, it started. So I had a company uh, that I sold for a, a very very small amount of money, and then I started a conference called HustleCon. And in order to make the conference popular, I created a newsletter, and uh, I was like, this content thing is kind of cool. Let's pursue that. See what's going on there. And we would just, I would write, I would just blog like crazy. I would blog, I would write like two or three blog posts a day. And it started getting some traction. But I realized that creating a blog and making money off a blog is really, really hard because you got to um, get traffic from Facebook every day. And it's, it's quite challenging. Um, and so we go, well, this newsletter works for HustleCon, our event. What if we just only did that? And so that's what we did was we, um, we said, let's just create news and information, but deliver it only through email. And when we, the way that we got our first maybe quarter of a million subscribers in a year was I would use that like popular virally content that I wrote on our blog, and that is why you covered us is because we did some controversial and uh, wild things that are for our blog. And and how did you then? How did you make the shift? How did you translate them over to su- subscribing for your email newsletter? Like, did you uh, offer any kind of giveaway or? No, not at first. At first, it was strictly. The content was great. I mean, it was good content. I learned how to write well. I knew how to write in a way where people would read something and they'd be like, oh, wow, this is a little bit different than what I'm, I've been scrolling through all day. And I got really good at writing pop-ups. So the pop-up that would show up, I would, I, I, I'm a self-taught copywriter. So I learned how to grab people's attention and to, and to get them to fall down the slippery slope of like, what is this website that I'm on? This is kind of cool. What is going on here? And so I can I got really good at just writing. It was just all through the written word that we I uh, I you know we would get a, let's say a million people a month to our website, and we would convert five percent of them to become email subscribers. So that's about fifty thousand. You do that for uh, a few months, and it starts adding up. Yeah, how many subscribers do you have right now for the free? Say it again. How many subscribers for your your basic newsletter do you have right now? For the hustle, we have yeah cl- closer to two million than one million at this point. Oh, that's great! Congratulations. And then, I guess, how, what are the what are the best ways you find to monetize it? So the plan all along was uh, twofold: was one, let's monetize. So we built this advertising sales team, and we built our own technology. Like, there's no such thing as like an email ad network. I mean, there's a couple people that are trying to do it, but there's nothing significant. And so we built our own email advertising network. Um, and we built our own technology to advertise in the email. But the plan all along was let's create profits through advertising in the email, and let's use all those products or profits to create more products to launch to our list. And so we've um, that's where trends came in. So we launched trends maybe eight months ago, um, and that's a paid subscription. And I'm going to launch more and more products to them. Do you do affiliate deals, or it's just mostly? 
Because I would imagine with affiliate deals, you don't have to launch your own products. You could take 50% of products you throw people to. Correct. And we we did do that when we first started. I'm more interested in um, launching and owning the brands because uh, I find that to be more exciting. Um, The model that I basically ripped off completely was SoftBank. I don't know if you know this, but SoftBank started as a a PC magazine of Japan, and they also owned a conference, and that conference is now called uh, CES in in Las Vegas. Oh yeah, um, they they bought into that. And anyway, um, what what Masa Sun, the founder, the guy who we read about now in the news because he's kind of a wild man, he would see which uh, advertisements were doing best in his publication, and then he would launch those. Uh, Companies, he would either invest in them or launch them, and uh, that's what I want to do. Uh, that's interesting. So, uh, you have advertisers, and if you if they keep on advertising, that tells you they're doing well. And what would you do? Approach them about investing, or you would launch your own competitor? To them? Yeah. So yeah, like I I study our audience like crazy, and I'm like, man, what's doing well? Like, what type of copy works for them? What do they like? And uh, what type of what which of our advertisers are doing best? I mean. We knew before the Zoom IPO that they were going to take off like a rocket. And I knew that because I saw how people responded to it. And so immediately our our sales guy were like, hey, I think this company Zoom, they're going to fucking crush it when they go public. And I know this because I know how much they're paying to acquire a customer. I know how our audience is reacting to it. I see what's going on behind the scenes. I mean, we would send them, we could send them like 10,000, 20,000 clicks to their website and and we, they would tell us like what's going on, and and so our and so when they went public, all of our guys bought a ton of stock, and uh, that's just one tiny example. But uh, you can you can see what works well. I mean, you you know you know how it is. Like you can you when when you have a big email list, you can see a lot of really cool insights into customer behavior. Yeah. You always write about interesting topics in the hustle. And there's one thing I saw recently on your website is, uh, or it was, it was just recently, which is the, um, again, there's always these interesting ideas that makes me think, but the minor celebrity ex- exchange or app or, or whatever that is, that is like an interesting idea. Yeah. So we have a, we, we, we had a bigger team, but now we pretty much just have two guys and they just spend all day finding cool stories to write about. And they just find that shit every single day. They're total news nerds, and they love this. And we, yeah, we just try to find interesting stuff every single day and analyze it. Yeah, that's a that's an odd idea because it's true. Like, there's a lot there's a lot more minor celebrities than there are Brad Pitts. And if you're a small business and you want a minor celebrity to, like, I, I was surprised even Gilbert Gottfried. He's been a comedian for like sixty years. Even he was on there. And if you're a minor, if you're a business. And you have like Gilbert Gottfried saying, oh, I always eat these, you know, sushi Ritos. <laughs> that's, that's, that's not a bad kind of exchange. Yeah, that's what people, you know, are you referring to Cameo? Was that the one we talked about? Uh, I forget the name of it. Uh, it's in one. But uh, I think, yeah, I know what you're talking about. I think, I think it was called Cameo. Yeah, I got my um, best man at my wedding got Gilbert Gottfried to send me a video telling me like I'm lame or something like that. And, uh, yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> I love that. I love that service. What, what are, what are, so I've used it for other things or, um, 
I just use it for pranks. I just will like have like my wife's favorite reality TV show host like tell her that she's awesome or something like that. And how much does that guy make by doing this? You can see the prices. Him, I paid two hundred dollars. Yeah, it's actually wow. the great. That's like the greatest way to see which celebrities are broke is by how much they charge. Wow! So that really moves the needle for him. Like he'll do that. Well, like, like how do they? If I pay, let's say I let's say I said James, I will pay you fifty dollars for a two minute video. No, no, no. Actually, if I said I'm gonna have a hundred people request a two minute video from you, how much money would I have to pay you per video to make it interesting to you? Uh, I don't know. Actually, so that, five thousand. Okay, well then that just shows how much money you have. That's like if it's like if like <laughs> I don't know. I don't. If, know. Or maybe it just shows that maybe it just shows I'm lazy. Well, if you're if but if you're broke, you're you're going to be willing to do that shit for fifty bucks. It just shows you have options. Yeah, that's uh, that's funny. So so again, you write about so many different interesting like business models and like creative business models, even in this environment. What strikes you right now, other than what we just talked about with with food and, and nursing homes? What strikes you right now as an interesting business model? Um, By the way, I do think information products are the best business model. So the hustle is the best business model of all. But what else is out there that you think yeah, is so like for people to start? So like we have the hustle, and then we have trends. And what trends does is we've hired a team of analysts, and all we do is go out and like reverse engineer cool stuff, and like write it, do case studies, and we have all these data points that show like what we think is going to be popular. And it's freaking awesome. It's just like my own playground because I I like to go out and invest in angel investing companies, and this just tells me what to do, and it's I, I love it. Um, and so what, and so, what what trends do you see happening right now? Particularly, come I mean, it's sort of hard to see for sure. Other than like basic stuff like commercial real estate is going to fall apart. It's hard to really predict post shutdown what's going to flourish and what's going to die in the next twelve months. It's hard to predict, but I don't think that's the right word that I'm looking for. What I'm looking for is um, what's possible. And so I like to look at what is what are consumers or businesses demanding and how are people doing things in other countries or other regions of the world. And basically what's working at a small level already and it's growing, even if it's just growing just a little bit. And then to try to understand, can that be done at a much larger rate? And is there still more room in the marketplace for things similar to that? So I'll give you examples. Um, something that is near and dear to my heart is news. I think that in the next 10 years, I think there's going to be a massive amount of new companies that are giving news to young-ish people, and they're going to charge money for it. I don't think, um, I think that uh, since the launch of the internet, it's been weird to pay for information like news. Uh, and I think that's going to change significantly. I'm incredibly bullish on um, small local newspapers. And I think that they're going to thrive in the next 10 years. And I think there's going to be a lot of new companies that are exploiting and pouncing on that opportunity. So I'm fascinated by that. Um, I like to look at how the Chinese and the Japanese monetize news. And it's amazing. They do it so much better than Americans. And I think that... that how, how do they do it? Subscription. Um, in Japan, I mean, there's multiple companies. Uh, Japan and China, there are multiple companies that pay, that charge you money 
for news and they also have advertising and young people find it normal to pay for that. And I think that that's going to be common in America, actually. I think that this whole Trump fake news thing, I don't care what side of the aisle you fall in. I think that everyone agrees that it's kind of weird that like it's easy to trick people into believing stuff and young people's bullshit detector is quite high. And one of the best ways to circumvent someone's bullshit detector is not to bullshit. And if you can do that effectively, you can charge money for your information. And I think that that's going to happen a lot. I I agree with you, and I'm 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 interested in your thoughts on this. Like I was looking at an article the other day on a, a one of the let's say the top three news websites out there, and the headline said CDC chief says highly likely that uh, a second wave will be far more dangerous than the first wave. And so I'm like, okay, they got me. I clicked on that. And the only quote from the CDC chief was, there is a possibility that the, that if coronavirus comes back in a second wave, it might intersect with the flu, making it more complex to diagnose. That was the line, which they then translated, you know, there is a possibility to, it's highly likely. So that's, and this was a major well-known, you know, a plus brand news site, and it was just clearly they were lying. <laughs> yeah, and so and it's and, annoying. And it's, and it's easy. Look, I've done it before. I know how the I know you. You and I both know how the game works. It's easy to get people to do shit online just to steal a little bit of their attention. But I just think that the average consumer is incredibly sophisticated. I think that um, a lot of creators kind of like dump stuff down for people, and I don't think that that's the right way to go. I think that the average person is really, really, really smart. Uh, when it comes to like internet tricks, um, and so I believe that people are going to pay. Like, behavior is going to change, and sentiments going to change, and people are going to pay for information. So I, that's one trend that I think is is uh, very that that's going to be huge. And I think that there's a lot of ways to pounce so, on it. How how will that be different from like right now? For instance, you you have to pay if you want to see the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post or the New York Times. Like, how would it differ for, differ from that? Well, I think there's going to be a room for a ton of more companies similar to that. Um, historically, uh, from like the 1920s to the 1990s, newspapers were amazing companies. I mean, uh, Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett would invest heavily in newspapers, particularly small local newspapers, and they would try to own a hundred of them uh, because it was an awesome company. They knew it was very predictable. Uh, it would last for decades, and um, I think that we might see some more things like that. I think that, like, if I'm from St. Louis, I think that you could start a St. Louis, an Omaha, a Birmingham, a Nashville, a Denver uh, local company that creates news and information for these uh, uh, smallish cities, and I think you could own 50 of them and make a killing. Yeah, it's interesting. All right, what's what's another one? What, what's 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 getting interesting to you now? Um. I really like uh, one thing that we discovered that I found incredibly fascinating is uh, various niche audio. I don't even know right what the right word is. Audio, um, basically, audio porn. So like people, particularly, well, mostly all young women who are willing to pay for romance novels. Uh, so, do you know anything about romance novels? Not really, no. Man, it's a crazy popular category. It might be the, the most popular category. It might have the most liquidity in the marketplace on Amazon uh, books. So I do believe that. I, I do know that's that's the extent of my knowledge about romance novels. Yeah, so like most people just know it by seeing Fabio on the cover of a book at the grocery store at the checkout aisle. But it, it, the reason it's there is because it's so popular. But um, 
romance novels have massive amounts of liquidity in the market, uh, uh, meaning that they a lot of new ones pop up, and a lot of and a lot of them are sold. And what this means is you've got a lot of uh, um, amateur writers who just do this because they freaking love it. They just want to launch. They love writing these books. And then you have a lot of readers who just who consume this stuff like crazy, like men do porn. They just like it's like an addiction almost. And so. Um, one thing that I'm really fascinated about is uh, uh, there's a handful of new apps uh, that were launched that um, are okay businesses, $20, $30 million a year businesses. And what they do is they do thriller and fiction novels for young teens um, and you charge them money in order to see them and read them. And uh, I think that what's going to happen is audio um, Romance novels, I call it audio porn. It's not actually porn, but or I don't know how you define porn. But uh, romance novels in the form of audio that could take off like a rocket. And I actually invested in a company that did something similar. And I ended up they ended up closing the company down because they pivoted or they pivoted the business and went a different route. But there's still a lot of room in that market for someone to to pounce on that. I think that's going to explode. So don't most don't most romance novels already make the audiobook versions and they're for sale on Amazon? Yeah, but there's a lot of really, really cool niche communities that are actually quite large. So for example, there's a company called Wattpad. Have you heard of Wattpad? Yeah, yeah. Love Wattpad. Yeah. So- I tried to invest in them actually, right? But I missed it was right after they just closed around where I met the CEO and I really wanted to invest and I was trying to, you know, sell the value of, of me. And he was like, "Nah, I can't. We just closed the round." But uh, they're they're huge. Yeah. So I don't know what they do in revenue. I, if they, you told me they did north of hundred million in revenue, I wouldn't be surprised. But I do know that they've raised how much? Other you would know two hundred million dollars, maybe. Yeah. I mean, when I met them like six years ago, so at the time they only they had an eighty million dollar valuation. So they're much bigger now. I, I don't know where they're at now. Yeah. So uh, Wattpad's a good example. If I remember correctly, I believe a lot of their highest. Uh, Grossing authors, or so. So, first of all, we should explain what Wattpad is. Wattpad is a, I don't know, how do you describe it? Like a, a community driven story site? Yeah. So, so by the way, both myself and my daughter uh, have written on Wattpad. It's basically you could write, you, you could write, you know, short stories, you could write anything, and you, st- and it's a social, it's like a social network. So you start getting fans and followers, and people are alerted when you write something new. So it's just like it's like a uh, it's almost like fanfiction.net. You could write fan fiction or you could just write your own stories and and you build up like a social network. You build up followers and connections and so on. Yeah. So it's it, like a social network for writing. And some of their most popular categories are romance novels. And so what I love to do is I love to look at these um, websites that have communities. So like Reddit, Wattpad, things like that. Um, and I like to look at what are where are some of the most passionate sub communities within that large communities and then create things just for them. Um, that's kind of like how Twitch got started. Is they looked at what's this niche community in, inside of Justin TV that seems to have the most passion, and let's create stuff just for them. And I think that mm-hmm. that's where the opportunity rise lives in this category. The, the only reason why I'm not doing it is because I don't really care about that. I mean, I don't. That doesn't interest me. Um, but it definitely could interest the right person. Yeah, it's interesting because so you would go to someone on Wattpad, let's say a popular romance author who hasn't been doing audio or anything and has nothing published on Amazon. And you would say, Hey, I'm going to buy the audio rights of what you wrote on Wattpad, or we'll go 50, 50 and I'll help you produce the audio and I'll be in charge of selling it. You put it for sale on Amazon. 
and boom, you get. Yeah, I wouldn't go that route. I would create uh, a dedicated experience to where you do a handful of things to where you get cliffhangers. And so what you do is you have these short eight minute audio stories and you uh, have it. So like each night the woman uh, can hear like the next iteration of a particular story and you pay $10 a month for it. Um, and you get uh, and you have various experiences, almost like um, the meditation apps, but for uh, romance novels. How would you build up uh, an audience for that, or or would you let let the content creator who already has a big audience on Wattpad, yep. uh, you let them just market it to their subscribers already? That's exactly what I would do, as well as uh, paid advertising. I think that you could do a massive arbitrage with uh, paid advertising. Yeah. So, um, what else? What's next? I'm just gonna keep. I'm gonna keep pounding you for what's next. Um, well, a lot of the things I was paying attention to were pre-corona. So, in terms of pre-corona, uh, I was very bullish on uh, uh, trade shows. Um, so, basically, there's this, there's a, a whole subset. I mean, there's a, a there was. Yeah, I, I sound almost stupid talking about this because this was only 60 days ago. But like everything's freaking changed. But a prior and I think it will go back but prior to this whole stuff there was a company called Informa have you heard of Informa no so Informa is a again everything I'm saying just reverse it 60 days but Informa was like a um, it's a B2B media company based out of England and they own roughly 80 to 100 brands and um, they were publicly traded in England at about a $14 billion valuation. They did about $3 billion a year in revenue and sales. And they would host trade shows for B2B, uh, B2B industries. And I was very fascinated in the trade show industry because I thought that it was traditionally quite old school, not very technology driven. I felt like they did use a lot of really bad ticketing platforms. And... Um, I was super fascinated by it. And from my research, I think that there was opportunities in the market for construction, trade shows, oil trade shows. And I did a whole case study where I broke down how they make money. Like each event could make like $50 million and the margins. You're kidding. No, yeah. Yeah. And the margins would be massive. And so what you would do is you, you and I know about this business, um, what you do is you get, uh, Sponsors or vendors to do uh, do a trade show. You you charge them money to to be there and to have a booth. And what you have to do is you have to make it so when you go to this event, you have speakers and the content of the speakers attract a particular type of audience. But the way that you make the real money is you have to have buyers and sellers who are going to uh, transact. And so, for example, I would create a. Con- I don't know anything about the construction industry, but I would create a. Uh, a construction trade show for builders of multifamily homes. Um, and I would create um, a trade show for that. And I would get people who create, who have supplies for building multifamily homes. And then I would create content uh, that attracts people who, uh, who buy like loads of multifamily homes. And you, if you do it, you have to have that transaction there. And the booths you charge tens of thousands of dollars for in hopes that they will at least make a handful of new customers to co- to to justify that expense and then you make and, and but those vendors actually pay for the hard cost of producing your show and then the the profit comes in through the sales of tickets and so what you have to do is you have to find niches in which that transactions those transactions can happen and cover and justify tens of thousands of dollars ch- charging to a vendor you understand what i'm saying 
Yeah. What about what about now doing these things on Zoom, like Zoom trade shows? Yeah. And so now everything has changed. I still think that that, that industry is going to crush, and I think it's going to crush is because a lot of the people who host these trade shows, like young people, are not getting into this industry, and but they need to in order to usher in the next era. And I think there's a lot of opportunity to make money, and because I think it's going to actually grow significantly because people were so used to digital, and they I think craved. Ways to connect physically. Now that these things have switched, Informa, I've been reading their earnings calls. They're doing a pretty good job of adapting to digital, but there's no platforms out there currently that do an adequate job of allowing vendors to have that transactional relationship at these events. There's, but Zoom, here's the secret though with events, the content and the speakers. That shit doesn't matter. You only do that to attract the buyers and sellers. The real money is made in the relationship building of buyers and sellers. And Zoom does not adequately provide that environment. Uh, right. So unless unless there was a video app that allowed you to kind of kind of go off into your own video with somebody. So like you sh you go to someone's let's say the, the the virtual trade show is a bunch of Zooms. Uh, you, you click on something and you open up zoom and now you're at somebody's trade booth, but it would be good to be able to go spin off into your own zoom, uh, with a salesperson or whoever you're talking to and have your own conversation on the side. It's a little harder to do that. in zoom. It's incredibly hard. It's incredibly hard. And there's no solutions that, uh, adequately do that. But I guess that's, uh, that's just another trend that I'm, I'm interested in and things that I've been studying. Yeah, I think I, my my guess is like as much as I like Zoom, I do think it's a little bit of a, a right now what they're offering is a little bit of a commodity, which is just going to drastically improve in the new environment. So you're going to see obviously right now you see Facebook stepping in with their own competitor. We're we're using Squadcast now to do this podcast. So there's going to be a lot of improvements in kind of video conferencing technology over the next year. I think. I agree, man. People are sleeping on Facebook. Uh, that's one of the few stocks that I just hold and always buy more of. Facebook's portal is freaking awesome. Messenger.com. Do you ever use Messenger.com? No. Go to Messenger.com right now. That's owned by Facebook. That is Facebook. It's the best. That's the Facebook Messenger? Yeah, it's so good. A lot of people have no idea that it exists. I keep that open all day, and that's how I communicate to, to a lot of people. I use it as Slack almost. It's awesome. Oh, yeah. It's really cool. Oh, but it is like... It's basically if I go to my all my it's as if I click all my messages on Facebook on the desktop. Yeah, um, and so the joke amongst my family and friends is if they want to talk to me, they have to use Facebook. I, I won't. I don't really text. I only Facebook. Let me ask you a question. Like I get messages now. This is what's really confusing to me. Um, for for thirty years, I'm an email guy, but now I get messages on email, text, Facebook, WhatsApp, Instagram, TikTok. LinkedIn. Yeah, it and sucks. Probably other platforms. Is there any kind of mega mail application out there? No, it sucks. I mean, look. Text message, Facebook Messenger, Facebook, uh, Superhuman, phone call. No, there's so many freaking messages. I hate it. I don't know if there's a mega thing. I don't want that mega thing, though. If that. Why? Because I miss messages all the time. Yeah, I don't. I, I'd rather. That's not the the solution to my problem. The solution to my problem is just don't talk to me. <laughs> it's not. I yeah. I don't want a way to talk to people. I don't want a way to easier. I don't want to talk to people in an easier way. I just want no one to talk talk to me. <laughs> and 
so so you don't care if like if somebody sent you a message on WhatsApp and you no, missed it for six it. months. I don't give a fuck. Yeah. I just delete. Oh, well, I'm I'm the same way because just by default because I only really look at my email. I don't, and then suddenly I'll remember like two months later. Oh, you know, I also get messages on Instagram, and I'll have all these messages like, why aren't you responding? Yeah, I just and, fuck them. Like, uh, yeah, I just I look like an asshole, but I just don't care. I, I yeah, you just. Like people are always talking about inbox zero and how much it stresses them. It's so easy. You just do select all and delete. <laughs> yeah, I haven't I haven't done that because I use I most of my emails are left unread. So I have over three hundred thousand unread emails. Oh my god, it gives me a nightmare. But then I use it as a database. Like I'll say, oh, who is this guy? And I'm able to see back through ten years of email or fifteen years of email. Oh, I got a message once before or there was a somebody mentioned him once before so it's a good database for me when i but i just deleted it all you're, you're you have a better memory than me though so i i have a hard time remembering everybody yeah no, uh, i just delete them all my philosophy is if it's important they'll email me two or three times and so so as we start to look at the light at the end of this tunnel what do you see kind of the first what do you even though it's hard to predict again what are the first steps you think are going to happen on the economy and what are you seeing in terms of both entrepreneurs and and more stable businesses what are people thinking well in terms of the economy i stay away from that because i'm just too simple-minded i don't understand that stuff um yeah, so not the economy, but but the economy is these these businesses that we're talking about. Like that's the economy, really. Yeah, I mean, it's my belief, and a lot of people don't like hearing this, but wherever there's tra tragedy and um, bad stuff, there's gold and opportunity. So I think that for the right-minded person, there's just so much opportunity to pounce on right now. Um, I think that uh, I think that. I always call them B and C cities, which are actually the cities I prefer, like the Nashvilles of the world, the Austin, Texas yeah. of the world. They're going to just thrive. And we were talking about it. So I think like the first step is I think that like hundreds of thousands of people in San Francisco and New York are just going to be like, I'm out and they're going to leave. Yeah. I think that's, I agree with that. That's going to happen a lot. That's going to happen. I think it will happen. Probably more. I don't know. Will it happen more in New York than San Francisco? San Francisco only has well, ten percent of the people that New York has. But yeah, let's let's compare notes. Like the last, literally the last four people I've spoken to have all told me they're gonna move out of New York. Yeah, I was gonna say like New York has like a buzz that you can't get anywhere that people like. San Francisco doesn't have that buzz necessarily, but it has I think a higher density of people specifically interested in technology. And but we also but New York doesn't have as much of a homeless problem and doesn't have as much of as a crime problem but both are incredibly yeah. high taxed and um and uh so yeah i think a lot of people are going to leave both those places and so what's what's how do you benefit what would you what does that make you think um well probably real estate in in these b and c cities yeah i mean real estate i think if you're i'm canceled i i we spend i have two offices one in austin texas and one in san francisco most of our employees are I'm canceling my lease in San Francisco, so my landlord. If you're listening, you're going to be out 15 grand a month. I mean, we're gonna we're not renewing. Um, so if you're a commercial real estate owner in San Francisco, I think you should be flipping out a little bit. So potentially real estate in in these other places, but I actually think I think those markets really will never suffer on real estate. Like it's not like like I do think New York City prices are going to go down 20. To absolutely, 30%, they're going to suffer. Guess. They're absolutely going to suffer. Why are you gonna? You're rich, so you're different. But if you're a 21 year old, why are you going to move to New York or San Francisco at, at, out of college and rent? Uh, a no, I, 
I agree. New York City and San Francisco, I think 30% at least fall in real estate prices. But Nashville is what I'm saying. Oh, yeah. Or the, Austin. Well, the, the, or the, Miami. Those places are so cheap comparatively. You know, it's kind of funny. Whenever I lived in Nashville for five years, uh, I stay in Austin a lot because we have um, our main office at this point is there. They all complain. They go, oh, it's so expensive. Traffic's so bad. It's so not. It's so not bad. Um, there's a lot of room. It's going to go up a lot. What do you what do you think of um you know right now during this time I I think a lot of people have doubled down on content creation so you see yeah it's you know, going TikTok through the roof announced, yeah TikTok just announced they've they reached the two billion downloads of their app uh you know there's probably more con you know even companies like Netflix and and YouTube have announced that they've reduced the quality of their videos by twenty five percent because the internet was just breaking with That's all the awesome. bandwidth requests yeah and so what what do you see with like something like TikTok any opportunities there. Well, let's just say at the broader scale, like a lot of people don't realize this, but pay. So, uh, do you know what Gumroad is? Yeah, it's like a book, a book e-commerce site. I, I actually maybe I don't. No, know. I, I would dumb it down even simpler, which is if you have a PDF or a digital file that you want to sell, Gumroad makes it really easy to create a very ugly but simple and effective landing page, and someone can just give you ten dollars for a PDF. Um, so a lot of people sell workouts on there or fiction. Or nonfiction short novels or guides on how to make something. But anyway, um, I I know the guy Sahil not well, but I know him, and he's the founder of it, and he is just crushing it right now. I mean, so many new creators are logging on to Gumroad to create content, and so many new buyers are coming. Same with Teachable. I think you know Encore from Teachable. Yeah, I'm I I am slash was an investor in Teachable, and they 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 just sold. Although I don't think the deal's closed yet. Yeah, well, uh, it, it sounded like it was a good exit. I think the rumor was yes, two hundred fifty six million. And I'll tell you, that is a high multiple of revenues for them. It is a high multiple in revenues, but over the last thirty and sixty days, I think they've seen a a, a huge surge in buyers and sellers of content. Um. I know that with my company, uh, Trends, which is people pay $300 a year for it, it's booming. Um, I know people at Agora, and they're telling me the same thing. It's booming. Um, I know people at Motley Fool, and people pay for stock advice. It's booming. So yeah, paid content right now, like paid newsletters, because I know I'm in that industry. It, business is booming right now. Is, is it for what? Yeah, I think. for do, do Do you ever talk about Agora on here? Uh, not really, no. Are, but are I do, you allowed to? I do think. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I do think I do think the online newsletter business slash online course business is in some ways the fastest. You know, you have that podcast, My First Million. I think selling a digital product is probably the fastest way to make a million. You know, and again, let's just assume you know sincerity, authenticity, honesty. You're, you're you're creating something that you that you value because again sometimes the copywriting particularly on the agora side sometimes the copywriting is very aggressive and sort of feels a little spammy but let's just focusing on the content if you make really honest sincere authentic content and you're delivering a message you believe in i think that's the fastest way to like when i started my company in 2015 to sell newsletters you know 99 of my content was free i was writing every day i was podcasting for free i was writing for free on every platform and so I kept 99% of my content free, but once a month I would have a newsletter with business opportunities and some stocks and so on. And our first month in business, we generated a, a million and a half in revenues. Yeah. And, it's, it's, and we were instantly, 
a million dollars profitable. Yeah, it's crazy, right? It, it's people are shocked by this. Um, I think Agora is a is a crazy company. You you don't have to talk about them. I don't because I think you sold to them. I don't know what you want to. No, say. I'm happy. I, but yeah, yeah. I'm I'll talk about anything. them. Which is I have heard that they do roughly a billion dollars and close to a billion in the ballpark of a billion dollars in revenue, and it's mostly paid newsletters. And people are shocked when they hear that. Oh yeah, they Agora has more subscribers across their newsletters than any other media company in the world. So you could think, oh, well, what about the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times? No, 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 no. You could, you could combine them and 10 other newspapers and you won't even touch Agora. And by the way, Agora's business model is very interesting. There's kind of Agora, but then there's, let's say 20, I don't even know the full the full tree. Yeah, they own like let's 30 brands, own, right? Yeah, but they own like, uh, let's say, a majority interest in all these other brands, but those are all independent companies. So if those come, if any of those companies go bankrupt, none of the liabilities go up to Agora central, but every year Agora just does a sweep on the percentage they take from each company. And it, yeah, it's probably like a billion overall gross is over a billion. And then Agora themselves probably makes between 500 million and a billion when they, when they sweep in their, their, uh, you know, take, and they don't, other than the initial setting up of a new business, they don't really have that many costs. Yeah, I think it's actually probably one of the most, I would imagine it's one of the top 100 most profitable privately held companies in America or close. Yeah, and then and then each company that they own does the same model. So it all, it all and, and where they create other brands and then, but they don't have any liabilities from those brands. And then they just do a sweep at the end of the year of all the profits. Yeah, most people, like if you, if you if you were just to tell someone who doesn't know it, uh, who knows about business but not about that company, they'd be like, "What? That doesn't make sense." Like when we started our company, um, I knew about Agora, and I told the founder of one of the largest media companies in New York uh, about it, um, or I told him about my plans, and he goes, "This is so dumb. This business that you're starting, it's never going to make more. It probably won't ever. You won't cross two million dollars a year in revenue." And uh, you know, I. I we we did a lot more than that, many 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 times more than that, and uh, so people who are smart and I tell them these ideas and I use Agora as proof, which I, our company isn't like Agora, but the business model is definitely similar. But anyway, um, they're shocked when they hear the, this, these numbers. Yeah, and and you know every aspect of the business. It, so the the basic business model of an Agora style business is that you have a, you, you know, the, there's somebody who's the creator, who's the main creator of that particular brand or sub brand or whatever. And again, most of the content is free. In fact, the most valuable content is probably free. Just like the hustle email you have is free. And that for all we know, that's the most valuable thing if for, in terms of the content that I consume or can consume from you. That might be the most valuable thing is what you offer for free. But then yes, but the majority of the revenue is going to be on the back end. Yeah. So so then there's a, a a front end and a back end. So so for instance, I have a newsletter where it's more, which is my favorite part of it actually is a, a front end is a it's kind of a lifestyle entrepreneurial type newsletter and that's it's a it it's a sp- subscription but it's fairly cheap. And then there's back ends. How much is how much does that cost? Uh, you know, it varies. So that's the other great thing about a digital product is that you can experiment almost every day with a different price, but let's just say 50 bucks a year. So like almost nothing, but it kind of, uh, you know, that tells you who your, your 
favorite customers are. And then you market the back ends to those customers. And, and again, you have to make sure I always make sure every piece of content is, you know, sincere and is, has my best ideas and, and, and so on. But then, you know, that's when you sell like an investment newsletter. And I hired analysts from wall street and, you know, for every category that I sell and you start selling more expensive newsletters. And that's really it. It's a very simple yeah. business model. There's nothing else. It's like, I don't sell merchandise. I don't sell, we don't really sell conferences or anything like that. It's just, you know, free, a free newsletter, a front end and a back end. And then you might have multiple back ends. And then you do also some affiliate deals on the, on the free. Yeah. It's a, it's a newsletters are a mar, or like a wonderfully simple business model that, uh, it just shocks people how big they are. Yeah. Our, our third year in business, we did 60 million or maybe more 70 or 80 million in revenues. And that doesn't even count. That doesn't even count gross, which was, uh, you know, when you have affiliate deals with somebody, the full revenues of your product is much higher than your actual, the actual, you guys did 70 million. Yeah. What was your, what was your, uh, what were you selling? Lots of things. I had like 10 backends. I had, uh, who was again, writing I them had, all you, I mean, how big was your team? Uh, maybe, maybe like a dozen people. Were the backends evergreen or were they new stuff all the, like, was it new content that was be creating on a weekly basis? New content. And we would, we would be sometimes several times weekly. And then, so then you just had like 10 different monthly newsletters. Yeah. And the biggest one back then was, uh, and, and I got, I got kind of, uh, almost ostracized for this. It was a lot of anguish for me. But which the is Bitcoin that one? I, yeah, the Bitcoin one. And again, you know, all of the content was, and, and my perspective on Bitcoin was fully mine. I'm, I'm still a believer in Bitcoin. My big issue was I saw a lot of my readers were getting scammed by a lot of these altcoins. And so I wanted to create a newsletter that would help them distinguish between legit currencies and, and these, you know, crappy alt altcoins that I, I said, I even said in the very first one, 80% or 90% of these are going to go, 90% of these shit coins are going to go out of business or more. And I think right now it's about 80% of the coins that existed then are now out of business. And so the newsletter itself was, you know, highest quality, but the ads, because you're competing against thousands of other Bitcoin related newsletters, you have to get people's attention in the same way that all of those newsletters are getting people's attention. And so the ads were a bit, I would say extreme, but that's the only way if, I tried to write my own ad and I'm not a copywriter. I'm a writer, which is, which is, as you know, is different than a copywriter. My versions of those ads would sell one, one hundredth the amount as an Agora style ad. So I just said, okay, I believe in my message. If this is the way to get the word out, it, so be it. But then the ads themselves would just, people were, people would write articles about I know, the ad. I know. I, and I would, I would beg people, like even friends, I would beg people, just read the content. You'll, you'll like it. You'll see. I'm, we're on the same side. And they're like, I'm not reading it. Well, so what, what was the average price of your backhead? Uh, for, for, you know, it could be anywhere from a thousand to three thousand. And for a thousand bucks, you get like a newsletter a month or a week? Uh, at least once a week, at least sometimes twice a week or three times a week. And it was just one analyst just banging out ideas. Yeah. And me. So I would work with each, with each newsletter. That's a shit ton of work. It was a lot of work, but you know, it's only a dozen people with, you know, a lot of revenues and, but you know, then Agora 
uh, some of that profit goes up to them and, and you're paying for their services. They, they write all, they made all the ads. So it's like, I'm paying for them to do the ads. So, uh, you know, it's, it's complicated how it all works, but I don't know if I would do it the exact same way if I were to do it again, but, uh, it, it's definitely a model that works. What would you have done? Owned it, owned the yeah, whole maybe thing? Maybe I would have owned the whole thing because then there's a, uh, I wouldn't have sold as much because they're really geniuses at making the ads. But, and I really like working with them actually. Like they were all nice people. They were all dedicated to their jobs. Uh, but I do think though, in on that newsletter in particular, particularly after I'd been giving away con all of hundred percent of my content for free for 15 years, at that point, I think people were just in a little shock that I was, you know, I was also spending an enormous amount of money on ads. And so, and the ads were over the top. Like I, I didn't like the ads. I always told them I didn't like the ads, but they were correct also in that, you know, Alain de Baton, who's this French philosopher, he says, if you want to compete with Machiavellian, if you're a good guy competing with bad guys, you still have to use their Machiavellian techniques to get audience, to get people's eyeballs to look at you. And, you know, unfortunately, I think the ads were over the top and it, and it hurt me, but, uh, you know, that was a long time ago. And people see that the, now the people who actually get the newsletter are really grateful. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sweating it that much, but back then in 2017, there would just be people crapping on me all the time, like all night long on Twitter. I'd had to, I had to one, one time I shouldn't have gotten agitated at all, but one time at like one in the morning, my, my girlfriend at the time was in the other room and I'm, I'm just like looking at all this, these hate tweets about me. And I, tweeted my phone number. And I said, if anyone has a problem with me can call me right now. And so from one in the morning to like 10 in the morning on a Saturday night, uh, slash Sunday morning, I just got nonstop phone calls and I would pick each one up and talk to people. I do that shit all the time. I always engage with trolls and I always want to cross the barrier of internet to real life. I like a lot of times I'm like, here's my address, have a discussion. Come on. Yeah. And, and well, what would happen is Every person I would talk to, I would say, look, my goal is I'm trying to make Bitcoin more accessible to the layman. No, it's, it's hard for people to figure out what Bitcoin is even now. And this was three years ago, which where it was much more difficult. So I would, I, that was what my newsletter was about was explaining why this is a good service. And that will lead you to strategies of what coins are scams and what coins aren't. And so after I would speak to each person, and sometimes I was speaking to pretty high up people, like people who were created their own coins that are still very popular right now. And they would always then go back on Twitter and say, Oh, I just spoke to James. It's actually different than I thought. It's all, he's all good. It's just the ads. That's awesome. And it's, it's true. I, I still, you know, I don't know how I, if I regret completely the ads, cause they did get me, you know, it did get the message out. And so sometimes you have to do those tactics. If I just said, please buy my newsletter, I'm a good guy. Nobody would have even looked at me. Uh, yeah, totally. But it is what it is. You know, it's it, so that's why I I like I like your approach though a lot, which is build up a really you know valuable free newsletter, which I had, and I probably could have just stuck with that and had a good business without you know going you know you know working with anybody else. But I did what I did, and I don't regret it. But I think I think your model is very powerful with the hustle. Yes, um, I agree. And it's a good model because I've stolen all of the best practices from people like you and um, a dozen other people. Well, what, what, what best practices have you stolen? 
Well, first of all, the whole idea of a newsletter, I mean, I stole that from the Daily Candy, which was a company that sold for $125 million. Um, yeah, I, I remember that. I looked at Daily Candy. I looked at Thrillist. And then I looked at Wall Street Journal um, and how they used to do things. And then I studied uh, Agora. I studied um, a Japanese company that I love called Usabase. And I uh, Usabase, what's it called? Yeah, it's a publicly traded company called Usabase. It's spelled U Z A B A S E. Before the Corona happened, it was uh, publicly traded at eight hundred fifty million dollars in revenue, um, or wow. sorry, eight hundred fifty million dollar market cap, about a hundred and fifty million in recurring revenue. Um, they all they offer two main products. One is called Speeda, which is a $13,000 a year database. And the other one is a news app that costs $100 a year. They're the company that bought Quartz for about $80 million two years ago. So I like Usabase. I, I'm in, the way that the Japanese do stuff, I love it. And so I'm very fascinated with Japan. And so um, I like those guys. I like Motley Fool. Motley Fool interested me. They, uh, uh, I believe the Gartner brothers and employees own the whole company at this point. Um, and so I looked when I started my business. I looked at very capital efficient companies, um, and they were one of them. Um, copywriting. I learned a shit ton about copywriting. I, I uh, have read uh, a bunch of Agora books on copywriting. Um, yeah, Agora runs a, a whole copywriting school. Uh, A W A I. Yep. So I know all about their that. copywriters. Are look if if you if you want to make a lot of money. And you're listening to this. Copywriting is the one is the most. I tell people that all the time. They go, "What should I do?" I go, "Learn how to be a copywriter." And they go, "Well, I don't want to do that." I'm like, "You don't understand. Copywriting is not about writing. Copywriting is about understanding how people think and selling them. You're going to sell an employee if you want them to join your company. You're going to sell a banker if you want a loan. You're going to sell your wife if you want to convince her to go out on a date with you. You have to convince people to do shit all the time." That's what copywriting is yeah. about. And like I'll tell you, when we have a product, let's say I had a product that sold $20 million worth, the copywriter gets 3%. And so let's say the, the copy, and he took like, let's say two months of writing to, to write the, all the copy for that. So, and maybe he's working on other projects as well. So I, the best copywriters I know are worth tens of millions of dollars. Yeah. Or more. Hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah, I mean, so from like a high level of just like the skill set of copywriting, it's pretty much just persuasion. But from a hard um, skill set perspective, it's like the easiest way to make money. Um, but I'm a self-taught copywriter, so that's kind of what I come from. Um, so copywriting is so important. So I looked at a lot of copywriters. Um, and then um, the guy who changed my life was Ted Turner. I started CNN, so I stole a shit ton from what he did. What, what, what like what's a couple things from there? Uh, he uh, he went from advertising to actually owning a network, and so I use newspapers.com. That's one of my favorite websites, and I like to read old. I, this I, I uh, pay ten dollars a month, and I. Uh, like just last night, I was doing it. So what I like to do is I'll look at where he was in his career, and I'll reverse engineer it, and I'll apply my learnings from what he has done. So for example, in 1978, he did a reverse merger. So Turner, Ted Turner, which eventually it became AOL and Time Warner and things like that. It started as Turner Advertising, 
and they built up a $20 million a year. In 1976, it was $20 million a year, which is the equivalent of like $40 million now. And so he had a $40 million a year billboard business, and he used those profits to buy a radio station in like 1977. And then he bought a local news network in 1978, and he would do things like the news networks he bought were dog shit. They were really bad. CNN, people think of as legitimate now. It started as a joke. And um, he would do funny things like he would put a bag over his head and have like the mysterious bad guy as the news caster or the news anchor. Um, and he would beg, like do phonathons where he would like beg for money and saying how like it's tough being number three in the market, but that just means we're going to work harder than everyone else. And so he would do all these marketing schemes that would try to push his, uh, um, um, I don't know, pushes brand forward. And I find that shit to be incredibly interesting. And so we, I, I like look at some of those like tactics all the time. In terms of operating the company, I have stolen a ton of, from Ted Turner. So he was kind of a wild man who was a little bit manic. And he um, was not an operator, but he was pretty uh, brilliant when it came to product creation and marketing. And I think I'm definitely similar to that. So I've hired pres- a president of my company to kind of run the day-to-day. And that uh, I stole that from Ted Turner. I'll tell you, with, with Ted Turner, I love how he took a local Atlanta station, TBS, and he is the first person to take a local station. This was right after HBO started doing it on a national level, but HBO wasn't a local station. Turner did the same thing HBO did. He, he sent his signal to uh, you know a, a, a tower, which you know then via satellite broadcast all over the country. Yeah. This is the it, first it, local it, station that actually to, broadcast all over the country. I believe he had to fight the Supreme Court in order to do that. So he had a. Oh, I didn't know that. I think um, I, I'm not an expert on this particular part, but um, for some reason, it was illegal to like it kind of like uh, like if you were the one who owned the satellite that would beam it and get access, there had to be some like barrier, but like basically. The, 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 basically, the way it worked was only a few people had access to the satellites that could beam it. And he was like, no, that's bullshit. We should all be able to do that. And he had a, um, it was originally against the law for him to do that. And so he had a fight to change the law. And so he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. See, now I can have my own satellite. And so that he was the guy who made that possible. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's interesting because I sort of think local TV now should follow in a weird way his model, which is every local affiliate has an audience, but they're local, but they can all be mini Netflixes. So they can all transmit, you know, and make their own app and, and make it, you know, sell it through the Apple TV store or Yes, this is what I was talking about earlier. I think this that's why I this type of shit I think is going to get more popular. Yeah, I, I do as well. I uh I, I think, you know, you can you can imagine exchanges where uh, uh people post uh, upload television shows, even a few minutes or long form, short form, and then in each market Somebody, I, I'm actually invested in a company that does this. Who? Each market can kind of grab, it's called Syncback, S-Y-N-C-B-A-K. Uh, SBTV.com is, they're, they're still an alpha, but they're creating a, essentially an exchange for local, in each market, the local stations. It may, look, it makes total sense. Shows. Do, do you have like a vacation home or do you like go to any small towns? No. Okay, so are you from a small town? No. Okay. So you, I'm from, I'm born here. So you maybe can't understand this or, but maybe you can. But if I go to Grand Junction, Colorado, which is a town that has maybe 200,000 people, and 
Like you think like Grand Junction, Colorado, who cares about Grand Junction, Colorado? It's small, it's not that big. It's not that big. Like, well, you know who cares about it and they care about it a ton? It's the people who live in Grand Junction, Colorado. And if I create a video series only about Grand Junction, Colorado, you better bet that like 40% of that 100,000 people are going to want to see that thing. And so that's the great stuff about the great thing about local news is that it, the engagement is ultra high because if I have a news program and all I do is talk about the local residents, likely everyone is going to either see themselves or the people they know on that show. And so the engagement is going to be through the roof and you could charge money for that. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, Sam, I, I, I thank you for spending so much time. You've, you've downloaded an enormous amount of knowledge on on us here all these uh great ideas great business models i hope you come on again maybe maybe after the shutdown's over you come on again and, and tell us what you see is happening in terms of the trends and so on yeah. but i highly recommend the hustle newsletter always so many ideas that make me think uh i'm i just while we were talking i subscribed to trends so i'm gonna check that out oh cool well let's do um I'll, 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 I'm going to write this down. We'll do a code for your listeners. So like, we'll do like a 20% off thing. So if you type in, yeah. what code do you want to do? Like James? Yeah. Okay, we'll do James. So if you type in the word James, um, you'll get a special discount. I'll, uh, uh, we'll make it a surprise what the discount is, but uh, just use the code James. Okay, trends.co slash James or, or trends.co and then there's just discount code James. The second one. So just go to the normal website um, and you can um, just type. You'll, you'll, your listeners are smart. They'll figure it out. Excellent. And uh, you should have me on your My First Million podcast. I have some fun stories. We should do it. Uh, we record every Monday and Wednesday. So in the next two or three weeks, we'll get you on. Yeah, excellent. All right, Sam Parr, uh, founder of The Hustle, which I highly recommend. Uh, thanks so much uh, for for giving us all this great knowledge, all these fantastic business models. And uh, Sam, once again, Sam Parr, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX, with a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.